Hi, this is Angel Wilson, and welcome to Spark Up. Thank you for joining me in my lovely little corner of the internet on this podcast. We're going to be talking a lot about autism, but not just autism itself. We're going to do a lot of dialogue talking to actual autistic people, getting their perspectives on autism and how it's looked at in society. We're also going to be talking to providers who provide services for autism and how they kind of see and approach autism. And we're also going to be talking to family members and get their viewpoint on what it's like to have a family member with autism. And we're going to have dialogues with all different kinds of people, including those. Some of those dialogues could get a little deep. We might talk about some some touchy subjects like racism and access to resources. But these are all topics that we know need to be talked about. So I hope you'll join me on this journey and I'll talk to you soon. Hello, everyone. It's Angel, and welcome back to my little corner of the podcast world and my lovely little autism podcast. So today we're going to be doing a bit of a story time because I realized that I haven't, one, I haven't really done a story time on this podcast before, and two, I haven't really talked to everyone about why I kind of have some of the stances that I have. I've kind of touched on it here and there, especially with regards to applied behavioral analysis or ABA but I haven't really gone into detail into what really shaped that viewpoint and why I have, you know, more of a lean toward the developmental naturalistic kind of approach and just basically why I have the stance that I have with regards to autism. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. And this is going to kind of be a two-parter. So this episode is going to be kind of my backstory, my story time, like I said. And the second um, episode will be the next one, will be about more about the naturalistic approaches and how much evidence has been building in favor of them in recent years. We're going to go over some of that evidence, some of the studies, because I love backing up stuff with research. So um, I'm going to be talking a bit about that, the different approaches that are available out there that parents and providers alike may not be aware of. And I'll even share some uh, resources in the local area here in South Florida that actually utilize some of these approaches so that you'll see that there are options. There are things kind of beyond ABA. And that's kind of what this episode and the next episode are going to kind of be called, Beyond ABA. I'm going to start off my story time going, taking us back to 2012. By this time, I had been in the field for a couple of years. And my first introduction to autism as far as, you know, actually being someone who's a provider and was actually working with the kids, you know, in, you know, in the families was the naturalistic and developmental approaches. These really, really shaped my approach to working with autistic children from here on out for the rest of my career. I really loved the idea of meeting the child where they were, working and playing with them in the, in the environments that they're familiar with, like home, the daycare centers. Uh, you know, uh, out in the community, because that's what the main focus of the naturalistic and developmental approaches kind of focus on. They focus on really getting into the child's environment so that they are at their most comfortable, so that they're more open to learning and building their skills. A lot of the focus is on building skill building rather than behavior reducing. Um, and I really, that really resonated with me. I also really liked it because uh, the naturalistic is to me, the naturalistic approach has a bit more of a thinking on your feet kind of uh, aspect to it because of the fact that it's such a child led kind of approach. 
you have to be ready to kind of move with the child. So I think it involves a different set of skills uh, than ABA in the sense that you have to be ready to move with the child. Like say the child suddenly changes their you know, activity and there you go, we were talk- doing Play-Doh and now suddenly they jump over and decide they want to play with cars. Now you have to think on your feet and say, okay, how are we going to work on this goal while now that they're in a completely different activity than what they were before? So that thinking on your feet part is a part that to me is a bit harder to train and perfect. And it takes time to get to the point where you can do that kind of on your feet. It took me years to get to the point where I really felt, I always felt comfortable with it, but it took years to get to the point where I really had it down. Like, okay, no matter what the child's doing, I'm going to find a way to turn this into a learning, um, learning opportunity. It takes time to get to the point where you can do that. And I honestly think this is one of many reasons why applied behavioral analysis, or henceforth, I'm going to call it ABA, why ABA overshot these kind of approaches. Uh, I'm going to go in a second into a lot of the other reasons why I think it overshot it. But this is one of the, I think, one of the main reasons. In 2012, again, I'd already had my experience with the naturalistic approaches, so that was my viewpoint. I had started at a large nonprofit that um, is going to remain nameless because it's still in existence and still quite large. And at first, when I first got there, they had adopted a uh, model that followed this naturalistic approach called the Early Start Denver model. In part two, I'm going to go into massive detail, much more detail about the Early Start Denver model. So don't worry about like, oh, what's that? Uh, Just know it's a more naturalistic approach um, to autism treatment. I really, really loved this approach. It was a favorite of mine um, because it took out some of the that thinking on your feet part that might be harder for people to learn and gave solid strategies and guides and, and approaches that made it easy for anyone to learn how to do it. They even had a book that I still recommend to parents to this day. I believe it's called An Early Start for Your Child with Autism, where it's just a book of strategies for all these different natural you know, environments and natural situations such as feeding time, transitions, you know, going to school, uh, being in a public place. It was like a book just full of all these different strategies that anyone could use. Parents, interventionalists, speech and occupational therapists, you name it. And I thought for sure, like, oh, this is like the the, the culmination of all these different things put together. Surely this is going to become like the the pinnacle and backbone of autism interventions. Like this is going to become like the go-to. Anyone who is in the autism field today can tell you clearly that's not what happened at all. While the Early Start Denver model or ESDM and the other naturalistic approaches were really during this time period focusing on building their evidence and doing a lot of research and, 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 and testing to make sure that their, their approaches were solidly backed, the ABA folks kind of went straight over to the health insurance companies and quickly became like their go-to, their their darlings, so to speak, with regards to autism. And unfortunately, to th- that also, I think, to me, kind of made e- ABA get a little bit more complacent <laughs> as far as their research goes, because in more recent studies, uh, there are studies now that are showing these naturalistic approaches being really good at certain things, even more so than ABA. And ABA has been kind of conveniently ignoring those recent studies in light of their total complete monopoly of autism right now. So again, in part two, I'm going to get much more into that. 
I know research is not always the funnest topic to talk about, but I try to make it more interesting because I think it's important for families and providers with regards to autism to know about the research side of things. You need to know what the science is saying about these different approaches so that you can pick the right things for your family, your child, your family member. So anyway, back to this this huge nonprofit. So they got basically the deal of a lifetime with a certain major health insurance company. So the nonprofit would get the health insurance company's clients, which was a humongous pool, and of course meant more money. Hey, cha-ching. But they would have to adapt ABA because that was the only autism-centered approach that the insurance would pay for. They would pay for ABA, occupational therapy, speech therapy, and that was about it. So anything else, you're out of luck. This aspect of the, the deal was never formally announced to us as workers. We were just told, hey, we have this deal with a major health insurance company. They are now going to become the sole source of our client base, just this health insurance company. By the way, little business tip for all budding businesses out there, never have just one source of clients for your business. Always have multiple sources because if you only have one, it sets you up to be at the complete mercy of that source. And if anything goes wrong with that source or if the relationship goes sour for whatever reason, you're in trouble. So please try to diversify your source base when it comes to clients and customers. Don't do what this nonprofit did because it does come back and bite them in the backside later. So anyway, they had this deal and the changes started. So the first major thing that a lot of us noticed was suddenly we had this influx of board certified behavioral analysts. Uh, which are known as BCBAs in the uh, ABO world. And I'll call them from here on out. I'll call them BCBAs. Just know that they are like the top tier of the ABA world. They are the ones that have the most authority. They're the ones that the behavioral technicians report to. They can do one-on-one services, but a lot of times they're the ones that are creating the treatment plans and the strategies and looking over the text. The texts are the ones that are usually the ones that are working directly with the kids, but you will have BCBAs who come in and work directly with kids. So I just want to give a quick overview so that you kind of know this is the kind of position that was coming in. They were also bringing in BCBAs into admin positions. So they were overseeing the entire program, basically. And slowly but surely, our old supervisors and managers who had more backgrounds in developmental psychology, uh, mental health, education, maybe even like speech, one by one started leaving. Some of them left on their own accord because they just didn't like the direction that the company was going. And some, I really, truly feel just by circumstances surrounding them leaving, they were kind of gently shown the door and kind of pushed out in a way. And uh, this little suspicion of mine ended up becoming true because after a while, the same thing started happening to those of us on the lower levels. But I'll get to that in a second. So out of all these BCBAs who were coming in now into the company, There was one in particular who ended up becoming my supervisor at one point, my manager, who sort of single-handedly tore apart the branch that I worked at and really turned it into an us versus them environment. I'm going to get into that a bit in a second, but it it was actually, I I don't want to say traumatic because that's kind of an extreme term, but it really did... uh, shape how I look at ABA in particular going forward. This one person really left a horrible taste in my mouth as far as ABA goes. And not just me, but a lot of other people who worked and reported to them and uh, the families that they worked with. 
back then I had a lot of faith in my workplace environment because up until that point, yes, I'd been in some toxic workplace environments or ones were like not so good or really had like a bad supervisor, but it was never anything that was really kind of, you know, devastating. And, you know, that makes sense. Our workplace is where majority of us adults spend our waking hours. So if there's anything that's kind of off about it or toxic, it can be extremely detrimental, not just to the employees, but eventually it's going to spill over to their customers and clients as well. And unfortunately, in this particular non big nonprofit I was working at, that's what happened, at least for those of us who didn't fall in line straight into what I refer to as the workplace ABA cult. Now, I'm going to stop for a second because I know that a lot of people hear the word cult and that sounds really harsh. I am not saying that ABA itself is a cult. That is not what I am saying. So no one go and quote me and say that. I am saying this particular set of ABA folks in this particular organization at this particular time fit a sizable amount of the bite model, which is used to determine if a group of people is in fact acting as a cult. There was a lot of, and I'll go into it and you'll see a lot of this in in the rest of the story as I go along. There was a lot of emotional manipulation. There was a lot of uh, mental manipulation. There was a lot of putting down of other people. There were uh, sly remarks and sarcasm. And there was definitely this huge us versus them um, atmosphere that got created, particularly in my branch because of this one person. Um, And Again, I don't use the term cult lightly, but that's the closest thing I could think of that, you know, reminded me of what I was seeing. And honestly, in the years following, as I started to get to know other ABA professionals outside of this group, I was told over and over again that what I experienced uh, shouldn't be the norm, was unusual um, and rare. But I also learned as time went on that this kind of setup and situation, this mentality does still exist in the ABA world. But I was told by many professionals, like, no, this should not be as it is. This is what you were in was an should be an exception to the rule. And it was terrible. We started having this pre-mentioned rift slowly growing within our branch in particular. It was happening across the branches, but our branch in particular was getting this. So we had some coworkers, by the way, I was at a supervisor level. So I had people beneath me who were acting as the interventionists who were going into the home and I oversaw them. So there were a lot of people at my same level, about half of the coworkers started immediately jumped into the process of becoming certified as BCBAs. While others like me, it wasn't a requirement for our position. So we kind of opted out of it because we wanted to continue with, uh, you know, the model that we were using before, because again, it had never been formally announced, hey, we're switching from Early Start Denver model to ABA model. That was never formally announced in the office in our organization. So to us, we're like, well, you know, yeah, you guys can go and do ABA if you want. We're going to stick with what we're doing because we're seeing progress of what we're doing. So again, that that started a riff. And unfortunately, my branch of the organization became ground zero for that that rift and a reflection of just what was happening with the rest of the organization, but just 10 times worse. So remember that one BCBA that I mentioned earlier that was going to be just like the 
them themselves are going to be ground zero. So I'm going to call that person Mick from here on out. They basically decided to make it their, I guess, professional goal to not only pull as many people as possible into ABA, but basically in a business way, punish those who protested any of their approaches and specifically protested or had any kind of issues with them. For Mick, ABA came down to one thing and one thing only, and that word is control. They often compared it to training dogs and freely admitted that they used the same techniques that they were teaching interventionists and supervisors. They used these same techniques on their dogs to like test it out. They freely said this on a regular basis. Like, oh yeah, I sat there and did sun such with my dogs and it worked. So I'm going to, I'm going to recommend that sun such does this. Yeah. Uh, they constantly referred to themselves and other BCBAs as the experts, which flies directly in the face of what I believe. I believe that anyone who isn't autistic and I'm including myself in this category, I don't believe that we are experts on autism. I believe that we know about autism. I, I believe that we may be experts on different approaches to handling and treating autism and teaching skills to autistic individuals. But autism itself, no, I don't think any of us are experts on that. Autistic people are experts on being autistic, just as Black people are experts on the Black experience. That's always been kind of like my viewpoint on that. So for this person, Mick, to turn around and say, oh, we're the experts on autism. Like, no, you're not. And I remember one time I, I flat out told them that and the look on their face was priceless. Unfortunately, in the process of all this happening, it really set up that us versus them mentality um, with everyone from the providers who thought like me to the actual clients and families. So everything became an us versus them. To me, it start, and I'm someone who's kind of really, I can be really emotionally tuned into what's going on around me. So to me, the office was slowly turning into a bit of a like cold war zone <laughs> of, of just like building tension between these two um, factions, I guess you could say. And the funny thing was my quote unquote faction wasn't even really an organized like faction. We were just, you know, the ones who weren't doing ABA. That's literally it. We were just the ones that were continuing with the the process we've done before because like I said we were seeing results we were seeing progress with our kids and you know I was like well you know we the the kids are enjoying it the families are learning from it you know they're implementing strategies you know it's not broken why fix it that was our viewpoint coworkers that I was once really close to that started going the route of getting their their certifications to become BCBAs I became very distant um so there were several moments where I got teased from them. Uh, I remember one particular moment where I was teased about a book that I was reading during lunch that was an autism related book, but it wasn't about ABA. And I got, you know, they made jokes at my expense about it. They also became fiercely and scarily defensive of Mick. Like if anyone spoke out against anything that Mick did that was questionable or anything, they would defend this person like they were a family member to the point that it actually kind of threw a lot of us off. Like, wow, why are you this like, you know, like snapping at us almost? Our goals became very rote to me, very boring and quite frankly, cookie cutter because we had to keep up with the demand because we had dozens and dozens of kids now coming in every day from, you know, this health insurance company. As some of us were trying to 
maintain some symbionts of, of compromise, like, hey, we don't want to do that, but let's try to do something like this. Our branch got kind of looked at as the problem child of the nonprofit. And so now more BCBAs were brought in now on like the higher levels, like the actual program administration levels to kind of whip us into shape or rather I'd say submission. So again, through all of this, there was never any official statement that we were switching to ABA. It was just the slow process that was happening. And a lot of us were basically getting left in the dust or, or you know, basically ostracized. We were starting to be treated much like the clients were being treated. And this was when I really got to see the, the dark side of ABA. I was seeing it in its full form. I remember during one meeting, a coworker that at that point had gotten certified as a BCBA was really like giddy about talking about and, and saying things like, we have an honor and responsibility to fix these kids. And I think that was the first time I ever rolled my eyes and flinched at the same time because he said that the kids needed to be fixed. There was one time that myself and a uh, subordinate got into a, it was a professional argument, but it was an argument with a higher up who was a BCBA um, because of their talk about how ABA pretty much focuses on the behavior. We were trying to explain that the emotional and mental motivation behind the behavior needs to be looked at just as strongly, if not more strongly than the behavior. So let me put that kind of into layman's terms. I just said a whole bunch of like uh, a jargon, I think. So for example, if the behavior is um, eye contact, the child doesn't have eye contact. The argument we were making is, why don't we e like at least look at the possibility that there are other reasons other than it's just a rote behavior that needs to be changed? There is a reason why this child is not making eye contact. It could be too overwhelming for them. It could be that they are you know, really shy. It could be that they had a past experience where they got in trouble for looking someone in the eye. It could be a cultural thing. You know, It could be something else happening here. And this particular supervisor was just like, we don't look at that. We look at we're, our whole thing is changing the behavior so that they have appropriate behavior. And I'm like, appropriate according to who? That's what I mean when I say like looking at the emotional and mental motivation of a behavior versus just trying to fix the behavior. And by the way, as I started looking more and more into actual autistic people and their thoughts on it, they confirmed all of this. They all would literally say, these are the reasons why we don't do eye contact. It's not because we're being stubborn. It's not because we don't like you. Okay, sometimes it might be because they don't like you. But like most of the time, it's because of sensory issues or, or things like that. So me and this coworker were correct. It's just, you know, no one cared about the autistic viewpoint back then. And a lot of them, unfortunately, still don't. So we were brushed aside and kind of ridiculed for that. That actually leads into like the, the first story I'm going to tell. Uh, Mick, I found out, had a particularly strong opinion on children in general. And um, as I tell this next story, story within the story, um, a lot of Mick's behavior is going to make sense, uh, unfortunately. So uh, here we go. I call this the Spirit Halloween story. This story, uh, I call it the Spirit Halloween story because it took place inside a Spirit Halloween store. So there was a um, kiddo that I had on my caseload. I'm going to call him Alex. He was uh, about 10, I would say, around, around this time. He, of course, was diagnosed with autism. He uh, was verbal. He could talk. He could explain himself fairly well. 
Uh, he was working mostly on kind of uh, what we call executive functioning things, which is just basically following through on day-to-day activities. That's, that's basically what executive functioning is, like the day-to-day things that we do kind of automatically. Sometimes autistic uh, people have issues with that. Sometimes people with ADHD also have issues with that. So that was a big chunk of what we're working on, just following through on, you know, the steps of hygiene, the steps of getting ready for school, the steps of following through with different things that you have to do during the day. Those are the big things we were working on. One thing that he brought up, though, that he wanted to work on and overcome was the fact that he had this really huge fear of Halloween stuff. Uh, in particular, he really, really didn't like the spirit Halloween stores that pop up, you know, right around, you know, right around Halloween time. All of a sudden, every empty uh, building in your in your city suddenly becomes a spirit Halloween store. So he really had a fear of those. And so we sat down, uh, myself, uh, the behavioral interventionist, the family, and Alex, because he we wanted him involved in this. And we talked about how we were going to work on this goal. So we decided we were going to do kind of a desensitize him. So basically, that means doing little exposure, you know, a bit at a time, to build up a tolerance to the thing so that it no longer scares you or no longer you know, causes major sensitivity. So we sat with him and, and worked out an entire plan. So we will go to the Spirit Halloween store and we'll just have you step inside. You just have to step through the door and stand inside for like maybe like, you know, 15 seconds or so. And then we'll go on about our, you know, community outing. Maybe we'll stop by Starbucks, get him like a little like something as like a reward for overcoming that fear. So we had a whole game plan set up. The day that we were going to actually execute this and have the the community outing, Mick decided, this again, this is the BCBA that tore everything apart. Mick decided to accompany me and uh, show up and see what I was doing. So we explained to Mick, what we were doing and um, how we were going to execute it. And Mick was like, okay. So we get to the Spirit Halloween store. Alex is starting to get nervous the second he sees the sign. And me and the interventionist are saying, you know what? We're right here with you. We're going to make it through this. We have our game plan. You step in, you stay for about 15, 20 seconds. You come out, boom, you've accomplished the goal. And so, you know, we walked with Alex and the closer we're getting to the store, poor guy is getting more and more anxious because he can kind of, every time the door opens, he can kind of see what's in there and it's kind of freaking him out. But to his credit, he kept moving forward because he knew I just have to get through the 15 to 20 seconds. That's what we all agreed to. And that was that. So we open the door, he steps in, he does his 15 to 20 seconds and me and the interventionist and mom are like, oh my gosh, I was so brave of you. You did it. Like, yes. You know, we're going to go to Starbucks and then Mick steps in. Now, because Mick is my higher up and my superior, I can't really, they're supposed to be the one that knows, quote unquote, more than I do. I can't really protest what they do or I could, but it would not end well. So Mick decides, no, let's go further into the store. And I look at Mick and I'm like, that wasn't part of the plan. That wasn't the agreement that we made with the child. And Mick's viewpoint was, well, if they got this far, then they surely can go go in further. At this point, Alex starts freaking out completely. And I don't blame him. Uh, Mick is now almost physically blocking the door. Like they are blocking the entrance and blocking this child from being able to run out. And the child is begging 
to be let out of the store. He is in tears. He is begging. The mom and I are getting noticeably concerned and Mick notices this. So Mick sends us to the other side of the store and says, you two leave because you're distracting him. So I'm going to stay with the interventionist. So the mom and I go to the other side of the store and I can tell by the mom's face, neither of us are comfortable with this. Both of us have serious reservations about this. We are hearing the child, Alex, screaming from the other side of the store to please let me out. Please let me out. Please just let me out. Mick is showing no kind of uh, emotion whatsoever, which by the way, a lot of BCBAs are taught to do. They're, to sh- they're taught to show no emotion during these time periods because this is, there's an actual term for this in ABA. It's called an extinction burst. Basically, it's, I hate to say it like this, but it really is like breaking the child's spirit. It's breaking them down so much that they will comply. And that's what was happening here. I hate that philosophy. I hate that term. It's one of the things I hate the most about ABA. I, I would, it would be great if they would just eliminate that completely. But that's essentially what was happening here. A very grotesque version of extinction burst. So I'm sitting over there, like really getting upset. Now I see the interventionalist and the child come into view because now Mick is saying that the child has to walk all the way across the store and then they'll be done. So at this point, I'm, I break rank. I'm like, screw it. I go over to the child and the interventionist and I was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. I said, I can't go against my supervisor, but I am going to shield you. I was talking to the child. I'm going to shield you so that you don't have to see all of this stuff. And the interventionist shield the child on the other side. I was like, all we got to do is walk across the store like this. So using us as shields, we walked the child across the store. Because again, this was already way beyond what we'd agreed to do with the child. We got across the store and finally now we were able to leave the store. I've never seen that child look so relieved in their lives. And the mom who, of course, at this point was feeling horrible about everything was like, you know what? Let's go over. There's a pumpkin patch nearby. Alex, let's go over to the pumpkin patch and pick out a pumpkin, you know, just to get his mind off of everything that just happened. And so um, we get over to the, we walk over to the pumpkin patch. Alex is now calmer. He's doing better. There's like a slide, like a little bouncy house kind of slide there. He's having fun with that. So I'm sitting there now next to Mick. And while we're sitting there, this toddler like comes by with their family. And I was like, oh, you know, cause you know, little Kim like, oh, and Mick goes, ew. And I was like, did you just say ew about the two-year-old? And she says, I hate kids. And I went, I'm sorry, what? Like, she was like, I hate kids. I was just like, I, I also just revealed that Mick is a woman, don't care. But um, but but I was just like, what? Like, wh- I, I just looked at her because like, why are you even in this? Why are you here? Why are you here? What is your purpose? It comes back to that whole thing of control. Uh, because she did not like kids, she this this is why she had the lack of emotion that she had with Alex and with any of the kids that she had going forward. It was at this point that I began to absolutely and utterly hate ABA and everything that it stood for. This person kind of completely just destroyed ABA for me. And from that point forward, it's not that I thought that every ABA person thought exactly like Mick, but it was like for an for a field to allow a person like this to be in there, to get as far as they have, to become certified, and to be in a position of power and nobody even bat an eyelash at what they're doing, that is, to me, was abhorrent. And 
yeah, that was where my that that utter like, yeah, at that point in time, it was hatred. Like my utter hatred toward ABA started there. Like it really got cemented there. Along with the uh, this major change in the therapeutic approach, the switch, this unofficial switch from the naturalistic approaches to ABA, there were a lot of organizational changes that were also starting to occur that were going to greatly impact the clients and the families. There were two really big changes that looking back, and we kind of said, a lot of us said this during the time, I hate to say my faction, but my quote unquote faction said, hey, Maybe we shouldn't institute both of these changes at the exact same time because it's going to have a really horrible effect on our employees and on the clients. That got completely ignored. <laughs> Funny that the mental health therapists are saying, hey, this could have a really negative effect on people's mental health, got ignored. So these huge uh, structural changes were implemented. They involved switching up uh, removing a ton of people from the families that they've been assigned to for years and putting them in new zip codes. And the second one had to do with turning all of the behavioral interventionists into part-time employees. So you had one, all of these families losing people that they'd worked with for years because they were restructuring how people were assigned uh, families. And then two, you had all these interventionists who had been full-time and had benefits for years, suddenly losing their benefits and switching to part-time. Needless to say, we had a minor implosion. So the minute this came within like a few weeks of all of this implementing, about half of our client families, 86 on out, they left because I don't blame them. They lost some people that had they had built bonds with, their children had built bonds with, and they were just whoop, snatched out. And we lost over half of our behavioral interventionists because again, you went from full-time to part-time no longer had a guarantee of uh, benefits. Benefits were now gone. I don't blame them. So now uh, supervisors had to pick up a lot of the slack. We had to now um, pick up and actually do direct client services. It became a complete mess. In the midst of all of this structural mess going on, Mix Effect was continuing to just permeate every part of the branch. I was now starting to see it in the behavioral interventionists that were still there that were under me. So again, I'm going to remind you, I was a supervisor and Mick was my clinical manager. And Mick had started jumping over me and talking directly to my direct reports, the interventionists. And what happened was some of them started to actively challenge my strategies in front of families. So echoing a lot of mixed ABA talking points and actually trying to overrule my recommendations in front of the families, in front of parents. Bold, like <laughs> bold and quite frankly, really horrible, bad optics because it's making it look as if the team is not on the same page. It wasn't even a matter of, okay, yeah, if you're going to sit there and have it take issue with me as a supervisor, there's a time and place to do that. Doing it in front of families is not it. So providers, if you either see this or are a, a, you know subject to this, that's a huge red flag. 
and it definitely should not be happening in front of parents. So that brings me to my next lovely little story, which I'm going to call my John story. That's not the name of the child. I changed the name, obviously, for HIPAA compliance. But um, this brings me to the John story. So this was a kiddo. This child was about seven, autism spectrum diagnosis, not really verbal. We were working on a lot of, again, the executive functioning skills, learning how to uh, use um, signs or devices to communicate what he wants. And, you know, basically learning how to do basic skill needs. At this point, like I said, the goals had become very cookie cutter, which I was not in favor of. But there was a list of approved goals basically to set. And a lot of the kids were getting the same ones. So in this case, one of the goals that uh, John had gotten was to learn how to tie his shoes. I don't know why that was considered to be a clinical worthy goal. Again, I was overruled. It is what it is. But I felt there were other things that we could be focusing on other than shoe tying. There are plenty of shoes out there that do not need shoelaces. I know adult autistic people who have never had shoes that had shoelaces in their life for this very reason. Didn't stop them. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. So this was a kiddo that we'd been working with for quite a while. The interventionalist was one who, so that's someone who's below me, who's working directly with the child. The interventionalist had been talking a lot with Mick in the last several weeks and had started this habit of challenging me in front of the families. On this particular session, I had come to oversee, every now and then supervisors would come in and, you know, oversee the session, see how things were going, talk to the parents, uh, you know, find out how they're feeling about things, tweak things if necessary, et cetera, et cetera. So I was talking to the mom, with the mom in the living room, the interventionist was in the kitchen with the child. She was trying to get the child to use signs or, or, or words to indicate what they wanted. The child was getting frustrated because the interventionist was not understanding him. And he was starting to engage in behaviors. He was starting to kind of knock his head a bit against the chair. And so finally, after I, I heard it beginning to get like, you know, testy in the kitchen, but I didn't say anything because I was like, no, I'm going to see if the interventionist can handle this. Finally. After about five minutes of hearing this, this child, you know, kind of getting, you know, more and more annoyed, finally, the interventionist called me in. So I walk in and I said, you know, what's going on? And they're like, you know, the child won't, you know, say, you know, what they, they won't say what they want. And um, I don't know what they're, what they're, what they're asking for. I just know that he wants something. And so um, I looked at, um, first thing I did was I actually squatted down so that I was eye level or even a little below eye level with the child so that I wasn't as intimidating now. And I looked at him, I said, Hey, John, I see that you're, you're, there's something that you really want. And I want to help you like, you know, cause I, I come from the belief that children in general, rather, whether they are autistic or neurotypical, I believe the children understand far more that they can say, especially early on when they're learning words. They always can understand far more than we think. So I was talking to him on a seven-year-old level, you know, because he is seven. And I said, hey, you know what? So, you know, what is it that that you that you want? Can you can you help us out? And um, he starts looking over at one part of the table in particular. And I look over there and there are two bags. There's like a bag of goldfish crackers and there's a bag of, I think, like uh, some kind of like cookie. And I said, "Okay, is this something that you want to eat? And he keeps like really intensely staring over there. So I said, "Okay." So I picked up the two bags and I held them up and I said, "Okay, 
um, which do you want? Do you want the cookies? He was silent. And I said, do you want the goldfish? And then he said, goldfish, yes. And I said, oh, okay, you want the goldfish. Cool, here you go. Here's some goldfish. Thanks for telling me that you wanted goldfish. Problem solved. So now I go back into the, I go back into the, the room to continue talking to the, the mom about the current goals and everything. I'm still kind of keeping an ear though, listening to the, in the kitchen now, because I'm like, in case anything else happens. So the interventionist has now moved on to the shoe tying goal. And again, I hear it starting and she is using, because ABA believes in using like positive reinforcements or rewards. So she is saying, Hey, if we're able to do this or get these steps down, then the first couple steps of this, then you'll get, you know, chips. I personally have an issue of constantly using food as a reinforcer, but again, that's another conversation for another day. So I hear this growing frustration coming from the child. And so I was like, okay, give me a second. Now I kind of went in on my own accord and like, let me go see what's going on. Because the child had already gotten escalated previously from the last thing. I didn't want him to have a complete meltdown. So I go in and now it's the interventionist who's looking frustrated. And she's just like, he will not do the, the shoe tie thing. It's just, he's just not doing it. It's just the first like two steps of it. He's just not doing it. And I look at the child and the child's just like fumbling with the shoestrings. So again, I go eye level with the child. I kneel down and I looked at him. I said, okay, I can see that you're really trying to get this down because that's how I interpret it. I don't interpret it as him just being annoying. I think he was really trying to figure it out. He just couldn't because that's why he was constantly fumbling with the, with the shoestrings. I said, let's do this, walk through this together. So I pull up the two strings and I very slowly like walk him through. And this child was hyper-focused. When I tell you he was there, like he's watching every step that I do. And I said, I, I cross, I pull this one under and I pull. And I said, let me show it to you one more time. And I did again. I cross them over. I pull this one under and I pull. Okay. And I unfold and I said, you try. This child nailed it on the first go. He literally sat there and went crossover, did it. And I was like, oh, look at that. I was like, you did it. I was like, oh my gosh. And he had the biggest smile on his face. And so the interventionist gave him the chips and he happily is opening his little bag of Doritos now. And he's just like, and I was like, that was so awesome that you did that. Look at that. You were able to do it. And then probably one of the sweetest moments in my entire career happened. The child stopped eating and he looked at me and didn't say anything, but he came over and he gave me this big hug and this huge Dorito nacho cheese kiss on my cheek and smiled and went back to his chips. And I almost burst into tears right then because that was the most touching thing at like ever like that. That happened years ago and it's still like fresh in my mind. But it was, to me, a very good example of how um, so it's okay. Like, first of all, it's okay for us as providers to show, like, to celebrate the child's achievements. Sometimes there are some, not everybody in ABA, but there are some in ABA that believe in showing, like, like next to no emotion at all. I don't understand that because you can't, how can you be for positive reinforcement and then not want to reinforce the child by celebrating that they did something correctly and, re and telling them, Hey, that was awesome. Look what you did and making it a big deal. Cause for this kiddo, that was a big deal. He was so happy. That's the happiest I'd seen him through the whole session. And he eventually went on to nail that entire goal. He was able to tie his shoes. And I think a lot of it was because of that positive reinforcement and 
also getting on his level, which is another thing that's very characteristic of the naturalistic and developmental approaches. With these two stories, I've kind of told you this is the first one is ABA at its worst when it's, you know, not uh, when there's little to no ethics involved with it. And again, I'm not saying this is all ABA. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying this, but that particular incident at the Spirit Halloween store was an example of when ABA goes horribly wrong. This example that I just gave was when the natural, the more, a bit more naturalistic kind of early start Denver model kind of approach goes really well. So uh, that's why I included those two stories. I wanted to show a contrast of the two extremes of like, this is this one that everyone does, but this is it at its worst. This is an approach that no one really does as much as I think they should. And this is it at its best. Meanwhile, in the midst of all of these, these, these great, you know, great and terrible stories happening back to the actual organization, which at this point is in like meltdown mode. Um, By this time, most of my colleagues who were similar to me with again, like the developmental mental health or um, education background had either left the organization or were on their way out. I think maybe barely half of us remained. A parental complaint to this day, I don't know what uh, family it was from. I hope it was Alex's family. Oh gosh, I hope it was his family. But a complaint came in about Mick and Mick was put on suspension for a few weeks this was done very kind of covertly. And I remember, I remember finding out when it happened because I didn't know that this is what was happening, but I remember a moment where Mick came into the office and went back into like the supervisor's room and closed the door and was talking to some of the BCBAs who like followed her every, you know, every word. And she sounded really distressed (laughs) and um, I couldn't figure out why. And then later I didn't see her. And it was because she'd been suspended pending a investigation into her work. And then about two weeks later, we got a very unceremonious email saying that Mick had been fired. By that point, though, to me, I think the damage that she had caused had already been done. Uh, and it wasn't until after she left that we really started finding out the extent of her campaign against the very children that, that we're supposed to help. Uh, we found out how she tried to convince other interventionalists to go against ethical guidelines, not just organizational ethical guidelines, but ABA ethical guidelines. So she's breaking the ethical rules on two different levels. Um, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Like there was apparently a, a lot of the interventions started talking and, and telling all of these things now, because now that she wasn't there, they didn't feel threatened by her. I started hearing really horrible stories. I started hearing about how there was one child in a in a house. Thankfully, it wasn't my child because there would have been, I would have raised holy hell. Um, there was one child who she literally pulled them down the stairs because they refused to come down from their room. There was another one that because the child wasn't doing what she thought the child should be doing, she purposely messed up the child's room, like dropped things on the floor and then made the child clean it up. There was another one I'm not even going to go into because it was all like it was like really, really uncomfortable. But I'm not going to I'm not going to talk about that one because I, I just don't. It, it grosses me. It just ugh, just thinking about it. But it has to do with um, putting male interventionists into a very precarious uh, situation with female preteens. I'll just put it that way. And her trying to push for this in the name of safety and the male interventionists being extremely uncomfortable with it. So um, there was a lot of that. We also found out that she was doing little to no paperwork. 
Um, <laughs> it, it made me really sick to my stomach that someone like that was allowed to stay for like over a year and was just not checked at any point in time. I left not too long after this. And the reason why most people are like, oh, it might it probably would have gotten better once Mick left. Right now, it I mean, it did, but it didn't. Um, by that time, it had been made very clear to me that I was no longer welcome there. And I was feeling that same push that a lot of our supervisors from much earlier had been feeling. I was definitely feeling that from the BCBA higher ups. And the final nail in the coffin came when um, I was in the middle of doing my second master's degree and I was heading into the internship year. And that would require me to have more hours to do my internship. And so I was asking and trying to see, hey, I've been here for like two and a half, almost three years. Could we possibly just have me do like part time, but still be on board? They said no. I asked if maybe I could be in another department that required less time. They said no. They basically refused to compromise with me on any shape or form, uh, even though it was school based. So I left. And the next agency that I went to had, um, I went as an independent contractor, not as an employee. And they had a far more naturalistic developmental approach. They kind of let, definitely went more in that direction. And I stayed there until I moved um, from that area. And I absolutely adored it. And it was like night and day. As of now, I think maybe three people from that uh, that were part of like my, like the mental health developmental educational side of things. I think there's maybe at this point, three people from that, that dark period, as I call it, of the organization that are still at that organization. A lot of the ABA folks have moved on, some of them to completely different fields, which I'm not mad about at all. Uh, some of them have gone into almost fully just admin positions where they have no contact with, um, with kids whatsoever. I can only hope that they've also moved on from the, the hive mind mentality that was so, you know, permeated every inch of that organization. And again, I'm still kind of summarizing a lot of stuff that happened. There was far more that was more personal. There were instances where I found out that that people that I trusted were running back and telling higher ups everything that I was saying and doing. And I even tested it out and got it confirmed that this is what they were doing. And it was just the amount of trust that was just broken, just completely destroyed there. Um, I can't, I can't really put into words. And I've never been, that was the first time I've been like emotionally damaged by a workplace environment. Like it emotionally just destroyed me to the point that the next job that I was at was not autism based. It was just, uh, you know, early intervention based. It wasn't focused solely on autism. We had autistic clients and I got a lot of autistic clients, but it was not an autism program. In fact, I did not go back into an autism program for a few years after that because I was just... I, I just I, I just couldn't. That's how much it affected me. Now, you know, one of the main reasons why I kind of do what I do and what kind of led me to where I am now. I don't want any families or providers, to be honest, to ever deal with what I dealt with and what I saw during those years. I actually went to therapy after that experience. And my therapist had said that a lot of what I was like talking about in my react, my emotional reactions to things she was kind of surprised on how much they kind of, they weren't PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, but they lined up a little bit with it. And um, it did feel like that to me at times. That's not me saying that I had PTSD from it. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying there were some symptoms that I had that are similar to that as a result of my experiences, which I have barely scratched the surface of today uh, from that organization. 
Uh, as I said earlier, I found out later that none of this should be the norm with ABA. So again, fast forwarding to today, I'm still not a fan of ABA uh, by any means, but uh, talking to more of the ethical professionals in that field has shown me and revealed to me that those in the field are starting to see the faults that I and autistic people had been exposed to years and years earlier. And they're demanding change within the ABA field. I've mentioned that in some of my previous uh, podcasts, like the Stop the Shock thing that was started by ABA professionals, uh, particularly like autistic ABA professionals. So they are demanding change within the field. And I greatly respect that. They have nothing but full support and respect from me on that. Autistic people have been complaining about ABA for far longer than I have. And I'm glad to see that a field that is supposed to dedicate itself to the autistic community is finally starting to actually somewhat listen to the autistic community. Took them long enough, but hey, we're, we're getting there. I spoke a lot today about my experiences and introduction into, the, into that field, but I think it was important to do this so that you, the listener, can understand you know, where my viewpoint stems from, why I have this podcast, why I have the business that I have where I train providers especially on how to work with, um, with you know, autistic individuals. And like I said, this is going to be a two-parter because it's going to, the next one's going to go into more of the naturalistic approaches. I'm going to talk a little bit more about my experiences with those approaches. It's a lot different than the Spirit Halloween story. I will say that. And my success stories in there and how some of those approaches might be able to help you as a provider or, you know, as a, as a family. Yes, this was kind of a more, uh, uh, I don't want to say sad, but a bit of a darker kind of episode. But I think, again, it's stuff that that's one thing I want to I, I, I will always say about this podcast. There are some times where we're going to talk about icky subjects. And this was a very icky subject. This is not something that's easy for me to talk about, because, again, a lot of the stuff I saw really upset me. But I feel like it needs to be shared because, one, uh, I just think it needs to be known that uh, ABA has its dark sides. Not all ABA is like that, but it has its dark sides, too. I, like I said in the beginning, I want families and providers to be able to recognize when you're dealing with a toxic ABA environment and know that you can switch. You don't have to stay in that environment, either as a provider or as a family getting services. You don't have to stay in that. You don't have to tolerate that. You can get second opinions. You can go to other agencies. You can totally do that. And a lot of us, that's what we ended up doing. So yeah, that was the purpose of part one. Um, so now you guys know why I, I do everything that I do. That is it for today's episode and part one of this Beyond ABA little uh, two-parter that we're going to be doing. If you want to talk to me more about this or any other autism-related topic, if you want to be a future guest on the podcast, or if you're interested in having one of my autism trainings for your organization, hit me up. You can email me at angelw, A-N-G-E-L-W, at sparkguidance.com. 
spelled S-P-A-R-C-G-U-I-D-A-N-C-E.com. You can also, if you want to catch up on other uh, episodes of this podcast, I can't believe we've already gotten to double digits with it. I'm stunned, <laughs> but um, it seems like we just started yesterday. But if you're interested in catching up on the, you know, if this is your first one and you want to catch up on the others, you can visit the website for the podcast, which is sparkupautism.com. S-P-A-R-C-U-P-A-U-T-I-S-M. So spark with a C, not a K, sparkupautism.com. You can also hit me up on Instagram at, at sparkguidance, same spelling. And right now I'm currently in the process of revamping my website. So once that's all done and it's ready to be reintroduced, I will share the website address with you because right now it's kind of under construction, but it's going to look really pretty and it's going to connect all these different aspects of my business, the podcast, everything all together. So that is it for this episode. I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day, evening, night, whatever time it is. And remember, be blessed. Don't be stressed. Bye.